So we are coming into the last chapter of Titus. This is Titus chapter 3. And we're going to read the first four verses and the first few words of the uh, of verse 5. And then we'll uh, finish up this little, this little section over the next, next few weeks. So I'm going to invite you to stand. This is Titus chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1, just this first verse is on the screen, and then I'm going to finish up with our reading today. This is God's Word to us. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Lord, as we listen to these words, these are, these are words that, yes, they were certainly written long ago, but Your Spirit brings life to them and breathes life to us today, and we want to inhale Your life. So please, Spirit, take, take the words we're reading, take the words we're going to talk about, and show Yourself in a way that would pierce through our minds and, and transform our minds. It would go deep into our hearts, into our very being, into our souls, and ch- change us, transform us from the inside out, and make us a people of grace, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. So, if you ever play sports or any kind of a musical instrument, how do you get better at the sport or the musical instrument? What does it take? Good genes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter how much I practice playing that thing or singing. I don't think it's going to get very good. Good genes. Yes, practice, right? And typically, especially, I don't know, I wasn't a musician, but like playing sports, it's it's the habit, right? It's the, the skills that you develop when you do, what do you call them? You do drills. You do drills, right? Over and over again. And that does something to you, right? Have you experienced that before? It's how it happens. It doesn't happen like in one day. It happens over, a, over a many days and over a lifetime that you continue to practice these things. You're training yourself. You're remembering things, and you're causing that memory to become almost second nature. So Fran told me to read this book. This is a book she read recently called uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary. So I'm just a few pages into it. This is, this is by uh, Tish Harrison Warren, and she says this early on in the book. Most of our days, and therefore most of our lives, are driven by habit and routine. Our way of being in the world works its way into us through ritual and repetition. She goes, she goes on to say, we are shaped every day, whether we know it or not, by practices, rituals, and liturgies that make us who we are. So as we think about this, part of our ritual, part of our practice, part of what we do over and over again is a practice of remembering. 
And this is what Paul is getting at when he's talking to Titus. He ended chapter 2 with, declare these things, Titus. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let nobody disregard you. Keep telling this. And then he begins in chapter three, begins chapter 3 with this, remind them. Remind them. This is something you got to keep putting in front of yourself and in front of the people that are around you. So as we look at this over the next couple of weeks, this is kind of our, our big idea. Communities, grace communities, consistently remember. This is part of why we do what we do when we come together and worship is our job is to remind one another and to rehearse things, to remember things. Grace community grows, it develops as it consistently remembers. So if you are, and he's talking to, he says, tell this to them. Who is the them? Well, we could look at all different passages throughout the book to say he's talking about those who have come to know Jesus as the grace of God. So he's saying these are for the people who have embraced Jesus and who have been embraced by Jesus. If you are not one of those people, this is still for you. This is an invitation. If you embrace Jesus, these are the things you also get to remember that are transformative in our life. So what are we to remember? He says this. We're to remember who we are, who we were, and who he is. And each of those has a lot to them. And then we're going to go on um, later to look at how it is that he makes us a new kind of people and how we respond. So we'll look at that in the future. Today we're going to look at the who's. We're going to look at the who's that he outlines in this particular text. Paul lists seven things here. When we get into the, we get into who we are, he lists seven things, and he talks about we are to be submissive, we are to be obedient, we are to be ready for every good work, speak evil of nobody, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy or humility towards all people. So these are all describing who we are. This is what he says: you are, and you are to be. This is. Who we, are, who we are to be, who we are to be living, how we are to be living out this life. And it's for the sake of the world. This is why it begins with be, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Paul's been giving us lots of characteristics as we've gone through chapter 1 and 2 for how we are to live the characteristics of what the grace community looks like, what the church is supposed to look like. So as he comes into this, certainly these characteristics would apply for how we live amongst each other, yes, but his focus is now moving outward. It's more about who we are to be in the world. So this is where he, he's kind of launching out of what, we, what it looks like to be the community, and now, yes, continue these things, and now this is what you're going to be as you move into the world. So who are we as people infected by grace? Who, we, who are we? Let's look at it. He says, we are marked by submission to rulers and authorities, and we are obedient. All right, clarification. This does not mean we support injustices and wrongs. We say, well, what about rules and, and things that are, that are out there that are wrong? Well, let's, he's not talking about that. Let's begin with what he says. Certainly, not all laws and governments and social structures of Paul's day were good and just, Right? We have issues with what we think today are injustices, which are true, yes. It's a whole different world in the first century, right? So he understood there are unjust rules and unjust laws that are out there. Paul knew this very well, but he still says, he still makes a point to say, we are to be submissive and obedient. What does this mean? I think it means be submissive and obedient. 
<laughs> I don't think there's anything super profound about the words there. Our freedom in Christ frees us to submit and obey laws that we don't like. I may very much disagree with the 30-mile-an-hour speed limit on 16th Street, okay? I have yet, I have yet to, did I, did I, get, a, did I get a fist bump from a cop? Wow, okay, that's good, that's good. All right, so I may, I may not agree with this. I, you may have some horrific, it may be so offensive to you that we have a law that you have to wear a seatbelt. That may, I, I, have, I know people that are like that, it's very offensive, maybe, maybe that's the case. But my new identity in submission to Christ frees me to obey laws of the land even when I don't like them. This is what Paul is presenting for us. But my new identity in submission to Christ as it's freeing me, yes, there may be times, right, where you truly believe that you need to stand against unhealthy rules, laws, social structures within our society that are unhealthy for people and that may be against the very character of God. And you may choose to obey. You may choose to disobey. So I want to I lay this out there, and this is for much further conversation in smaller groups. But we are, if that is the case, if you make that decision, we are still to do so with submission. What do we mean by that? Well, we are to humbly accept the consequences of the disobedience. Now, there are lots of examples within history, but also within Scripture that we could look at. You know, some of the famous examples are, if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, you got Daniel and, uh, well, first his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they build a big idol, and the ruler says, bow down to this, and they're like, with all due respect, no, we won't. Well, if you don't, you're going to get thrown into a fire. They say, let it be. And then Daniel, he's, he's, they're, they're said, don't pray to anybody for this season except for to the, to the king. And Daniel does what he always does. He doesn't change his routine, and he gets caught, so they throw him in a lion's den. Okay? Submit to the discipline. Now, in both of those situations, they get, God intervenes, and they don't actually die. But they didn't know that was going to happen, and no, nor do you. So if you decide to disobey for conscience sake, for the, because of the character of God, if that's the case, Paul says submit. Be willing to accept what might come your way. Their respectful approach, their civil disobedience was done while counting the cost. So counting the cost is part of what it looks like to live submissively. He goes on rather... What do you think of this? Like, I don't know, you may hate this. Again, we can have more conversation about this. He goes on, he says, rather than being marked by disobedience and being disrespectful to those in authority, constantly fighting for our own personal preference, he says, rather than that, we are to be ready for every good work. We are to be on the lookout for where we can do good for others, for our community, even those in authority. Are we on the lookout for those that we can do good to? Right? Again, you see this in, in history. You see this again in different parts of, of Scripture where people maybe, f- they, don't, they don't fight against the authority. They may stand against an authority, but they don't do so with defiance. 
right? And sometimes when you start living for the good of the people that are around you, when you start actually looking out for the good, even for the rulers around you, sometimes that benefits them and you see blessings unfold. I mean, this, this is told, Daniel's another great example of that in the Old Testament. He like loves and serves the king well and the king flourishes because of this. And you see this with Ezra and Nehemiah. They have favor in the eyes of their king, and their king blesses them to go and do things that their heart really desires to. You don't know what your good work might do for those that are around you, but our call is seek the good of the world around you, even when it's leaders that you may or may not have an affinity for. Then he goes on, from general submission and good works in society to interpersonal relationships. Because he says, this is verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We are to work and to speak for the good of others, even those who may consider us their enemies. This is where the rubber meets the road. Like, it's good, it's kind of easy to do that kind of life when people like you or when you like those people. But how about when it's for your enemies? This involves avoiding fights, not because we are cowards. Like when he says avoid the quarreling, he's not saying be a coward of fighting. Don't be afraid of fighting. He's, he's not saying be afraid of fighting. He's not talking about that at all. We're not, it's not about a fear. It's not about cowarding. But it's for seeking the good of people other than winning our way. This is what he's getting at. You don't have to keep fighting for your way. And when disagreements do arise, and maybe you have to enter into some kind of, you know, call it fight or the disagreement, how are we to handle them? Because those, those situations will arise. How are we to handle them? He says do it like this, with gentleness and humility or courtesy. And you're supposed to do that, just do that to your friends, right? Is that what he says? No, he says to all people. To all people, this is how we're to live. This is who we are to be as Jesus' grace community. We are to be, a, be, be, be the good of society, and we're to work for the good of others in the world, and not just toward our friendly neighbors who like us and who agree with us, but those who view us as their political, their social, and their religious enemies. We're to live this way towards that and towards them. And we are to be this because it's actually a new identity. It's not just something we're supposed to wear and artificially put on. This is actually supposed to, this is our new identity. It's who we are and it's who we're becoming. Is this what the world experiences from us? Is this the, what the world experiences from, from you as a, as a person, from us as a community? Or do they see us as genuinely being for their good? Right? That doesn't necessarily mean that we are for their belief system or before, for their actions. That's not the issue here. The issue is, do they experience that we are for them even at our own expense? Like it may be somebody that you really oppose in certain areas of society, but when it comes down to it, are you willing to sacrifice for their good? Because that's what grace community does when it moves into the world. All right, so with this, he then contrasts this new way to, which is in verses 1 and 2, with verse 3, 
what we ourselves once were, he says, if we are now followers of Jesus. So you're new. This is who you are. Now, this is who you were. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is who you are, were. And he has, so he had seven things that we are, and now he lists seven things that you could kind of um, cross over. Now, I'll let you do that in your own time. You can look at those, compare how they contrast with one another. Seven things that contrast. So why does he bring this up, what we once were? Isn't the past, the old identity, something we should just move past? Shouldn't, we just, shouldn't you forget all that, all that stuff that you were? Well, I mean, I think that's a really fair question. That's a very good question. And for starters, I'm not sure, like, why would he bring this up? Well, I don't think that they were all that much different than we were, the, the audience that Paul is writing to, not only to Titus, but to the people that Titus is serving, because I would imagine, like us, they were not always living out their new identity, <laughs> right? This is who you are. I have a feeling they probably weren't fully living out of their new identity. They were probably falling back into what they formerly were, okay? I can connect to that. I can resonate with that. Why then does he say, why does he say it like this? Why does he say, this is what you were and this is what you are now? Why does he say that then? Well, this is who we were because grace appeared. And when we forget about this grace story, this old person, this old self, begins to show its ugly face. So I think he's bringing this to us because, he know, yeah, you're a new person, but when you start living out this way, you're a new person because of grace. When you start living out the old way, it's because you are forgetting grace. So he says... This is what he is, the old one. This is what she is, the old one. What is, what is he? What is she? It's, it's foolish. It's disobedient. It's led astray. It's a slave to various passions and pleasures. It's passing the days in malice and envy. It's hated by others, and it's hateful towards others. This is what we want to be freed from. This is what we are being freed from. This is what he says you will fully be freed from. This is what you will be freed from. This is the old person. When we live this way, though, we are not living out the new identity. It's an indicator we're not living out this new identity in Jesus. What is this? Are we a, are we a split personality? <laughs> I mean, is that what we are? I think so. I don't know what else to say. I think in some ways we are. So if you are, if you were, if someone is, an orphan. Let's say they were raised their first few years in an orphanage. And in that orphanage, they, let's say they weren't cared for well. So they had to fight. Had to fight for food. Had to fight to protect themselves. And all of a sudden, now they're adopted by a family that genuinely loves them and that cares for them. Gives them a home and a safe place to, to live. All the food that they want. They have their own bedroom and their own bed to sleep in. Let's say that that is now the case with this former orphan. But that orphan still like sleeps under the stairs won't sleep in the bed, and you find that that, that new adopted child starts stealing food and, and fighting to protect their toys. Is that understandable? Abs from a psychological perspective, absolutely that's understandable. If you've ever known someone in that, in that situation, it makes a lot of sense. But they're not living in the truth. They're living as if they are still an orphan, and they are not. They have been adopted. There's a guy, 
a former pastor named Jack Miller, and he had, this, he had this program called Sonship, and he would talk about the orphan mentality as opposed to a sonship or a daughtership mentality. The gospel invites you into a sonship mentality. Even though you were an orphan, you are no longer in Christ an orphan. So when you start having those characteristics it's not your true identity. I understand. It's so easy to go back into it, but it's not who you truly are. This is how we can be, can't it? Can't we live like orphans so very often when we've been adopted? So knowing that, what does Paul then, why does he bring this up? Like, why does he tell us, why does he say, remember, remember your old self? Remember the orphan stuff. Why does he, remi- why does he remind us and why does he tell us to remind one another? Okay, here, here's four thoughts. Here's some things to consider for why he would bring this up. One is, it helps us honestly face the present struggles. When we, when we see those old ways in us, we don't want to just justify it. We don't want to just sweep it under the rug like it's no big deal. Oh, it's no big deal. No, it actually is a big deal. When you start living foolishly, when you start living hatefully, it actually is a really big deal. We need to own it. We need to remember this is the old man. This old way is not just harmful to us. It's harmful to the people around us. We bring hate to the world around. We live this way. So I think he says, remember it because, you know what? It's a present struggle. But then secondly, the reminder keeps us humble. We are no better than anybody else that we may be tempted to judge. <laughs> Look around at the world and you see people that are living this way. And it's so easy to judge them, right? I think he says, I want you to remember who you were. Because that guards your heart against condescending judgment. And then thirdly, the reminder helps us not not to be far removed from others who have maybe not encountered grace in the new life. Like keeping the memory close to us is not to make us depressed. This isn't to make you like beat yourself up. It's to make you accessible. It's to help us to be relatable to the world not holier than thou. And then the fourth, the fourth thought here is ultimately the reminder of who we are without him fosters gratitude for what God has done, is doing, and will do. Like remembering where he brought you fosters celebration and gratitude for what he's done. All right, so coming out of all this, where does this change of identity actually come from? All right, and we're going to talk in the more details about how it happens next week. But right here, Paul continues in verse 4 saying, and leading into 5, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, what did he do? He, he, he saved us. What, in, what or who makes a difference? How do we get from the old person to the new person? According to this, it is this God has done it. And specifically, who is this God? What's well, the goodness and the loving kindness of God? It's, it's not just generic God. It's a God who has genuine gentleness and loving kindness towards us. And this God has appeared to save us. All right. Who is that? Who, who and how has he appeared to us? Jesus, right? 
Jesus is, is, I mean, think about him. He is the goodness and he is the loving kindness of God to save. He is the one who has appeared. That's what Paul's telling us. He's appeared to be the perfect human. This, this characteristic of what man is supposed to be that Paul outlines, Jesus is the fullness of that. He is that. And he came to face the old man. He didn't come and ignore the old man. He actually came to the old man, and he came to deliver us from this body of of death, the dying humanity. He's coming to bring us out of the old into the new. This is what he came to do. So what does this mean about him? And therefore, therefore what does it mean for us? Well, God, God knows all your old man stuff. I know we know this, but I think it's helpful to remember God actually knows all of the old stuff. All the foolishness and disobedience and wandering and slavery and living in malice and envy and being hated by others and hating others. He knows this very, very well. And yet, knowing this, Jesus came to us. He knows it about us and he comes to us. He, he didn't just stand back and ignore our sin and the harm that we bring into the world, nor is he going to let it go on forever. I know some people have a really hard time with there being a good God because they look around. This came up in a conversation this past week. How can there be a a good God and all this stuff happen? And I can't fully answer that, but I can tell you this. Jesus says it will not last forever. He says that. Jesus came because there is another way to do this life. And at the same time with all of this, there's no degree of sin, of disobedience, of wandering that pushes you too far from him. His goodness and his kindness can reach you wherever you are. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, and his ear is not too dull that it cannot hear. Jesus is not shocked by our foolishness He is not shocked by the fact that we're hated by others. He's not shocked by the fact that we hate others. He knows, in the words of a TV show, he knows your dark passenger. He knows what is down deep inside better than we do. And with the knowledge of who we are and the, the, the monster that's within, the knowledge of this, he willingly appeared. He came to us to live with us in this state. He knew what he was entering into. He came to live with us in this state, to love us in this state, while knowing the suffering that we were going to inflict on him. If you, if you know, if you step into a situation, a relationship, that you are going to be abused, rejected, hurt? Are you going to step into that? Holy cow, I just don't. That's, this is a challenge for me, particularly this week. That's not my way. This is his way. Knowing what he would face, he did come to rescue us, to rescue the, the old dying humanity. How does he do this? Not by taking up the sword like he could have justly taken up the sword, the, sword, the sword to destroy us. He didn't come to send another flood to wipe us off the face of the earth. Right? But he, he came and he, he received the sword. This is his way. 
He came and he was drowned. He was baptized, you could say. He was drowned. He was baptized in the flood of human corruption and God's judgment. He took that flood. He took that baptism. His death was his way of fighting the old humanity and winning. His death was a way of not only fighting, it's a way of winning. How does he, how does he win? How do, you, how do you win by losing? That doesn't make any sense. Actually, it does because he defeated the old man by responding to our hate and our rejection with goodness and loving kindness. That's how he wins. That's true victory. Seeing that he loves you enough to to suffer for me and to suffer at our hands, this has a way of getting below the surface, like of my moral failures, getting underneath the surface to to the rebellious insecurity of my own heart getting to the heart problem, the sickness, where he can inject love. Man, do we not need that? Sacrifice of love, it didn't didn't end in death, right? It was transformed through death, giving birth to resurrection. The new life that he embodied coming out of the tomb is a new life and the identity that he wants to give us. That's where the new life comes from, that we get to embrace through repentance and faith. Jesus is the one who saves. He's the one who makes the ultimate transition possible. (laughs) Not, Not surface transition, transition from death to life. Identification with him, being baptized in him, is how the old man dies and the new man is born. Grace community needs to remember this. This is why we do what we do. Remember who we are, remember who we were, but man, remember who he is that makes transformation possible. He saves. Father, thank you that you love in a way that is beyond our our comprehension. You love in ways that we would have a hard time not even thinking of, but doing. You love perfectly. You love sacrificially. You love with complete kindness and gentleness and loving kindness. Thank you for this. Help us to eat and to drink that, to experience it, so that we be a different kind of people. In your name, amen.